Welcome to Improv Interviews. In this episode, we'll be chatting with Gary Schwartz, actor, director, author, and improv coach for 35 years. Many people know Gary as the only master teacher to have ever earned an endorsement from both Fiola Spolin and her son, Paul Sills, the original director of Second City. But today, Gary will be discussing his children's book, The King of Average, which just won the Literary Classics Award. Gary speaks honestly and openly about how his childhood contributed to writing this wonderful book, which is not just for kids. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, hi, Margo. It's a pleasure. I understand that your wonderful book, The King of Average, just won an award. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I wrote a children's middle grade novel, a fantasy book called The King of Average, and uh, I just found out uh, July 1st, as a matter of fact, that um, it won in two categories. It won the gold medal for children's literary classics. And I'm making plans right now to go receive the, the medals. Uh, they're going to be at a, uh, a book fair and, and writers conference in Rapid City, South Dakota on Labor Day. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I met you by going online and looking for improvisational work and teachers and uh, found your wonderful site several years ago. And I've been blessed to speak to you about um, techniques and Spolin work. But today, I, I'd like to really hear about your story and um, what led to the King of Average. A lot of people know you as a master coach and a beautiful teacher. They don't really know, perhaps, that you wrote and starred in successful TV children's shows and many other things. Right. And and I'm also fascinated about your Hudson River <laughs> experiences. So I'd like you to just talk about <laughs> what I'd like to hear your life story today. This is your life, Gary Schwartz. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and um, my parents, uh, when I was about two years old, moved to upstate New York, to Schenectady, New York, where I grew up and went to school and um, uh, spent my my first, uh, how long was I there? I was there probably into my 20s, so uh, that's where I grew up, and... Um, uh, I, uh, I had an idea when I was, uh, about 11 years old. A lot of people tell me, you know, you know, I get the question a lot. How long did it take you to write the King of Average? And I tell them it took me about 52 years. Uh, because I wrote, I, I had this idea when I was, uh, 11. Um, I, I grew up in a uh, rather, uh, uh, abusive, uh, unstable home with uh, my father who had bipolar disorder. They called it manic depression back then. Yeah. And uh, my mother was uh, extremely neurotic and uh, later in life uh, became schizophrenic. So uh, there was a lot of, um, I would say, you know, uh, abuse, physical and, and, and mental. <clears throat> mental abuse, um, you know, uh, all of us kids, I was part of uh, a family of four. Um, I was the oldest boy. Anyway, we all had to sort of survive this uh, childhood. At the same time, we were growing up in the 50s where 
you had this idealized view of uh, family life uh, on Leave it to Beaver and all of that stuff. And I watched television from a very early age, um, wanting very much to have that kind of a childhood. You know, uh, one of the things I used to do was um, sort of escape to my friends' houses and sort of live with them uh, as, as much as I could. But back to the King of Average, um, I, my mother was very unhappy woman and she, uh, she, she used to just tell me, you know, that I was ruining her life and why did she ever have kids and all of this. And I had, I had very bad self-esteem and I talked myself out of it one day walking to school. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad. And then the other little voice in my head said, well, you're not that good. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm not that bad. <laughs> and I said, you know, what if I'm, what if, what if, uh, you know, I, I'm average. And then I thought, yeah, I bet if I, if I tried, I could probably be the, mo- the most average person who ever lived. And that little, that little paradox of being the most average more average than anybody else in the whole world made me laugh. And I, I had uh, I, I had just finished reading a book called The Phantom Tollbooth back then, which was a little fantasy adventure about a little boy who was bored who uh, stumbled into a fantasy land and, and met a, a watchdog with a, a named Tok who had a watch on his stomach. And uh, it was filled with a lot of... Uh, puns and, and wordplay, and it was my favorite book growing up. And I started to think about, you know, uh, me as uh, entering this kingdom of average, where I would meet a talking goat uh, named Mayor Culpa, uh, who was a <laughs> scapegoat. Uh-huh. And, you know, so I started to think, you know, oh, that's pretty funny and punny, and uh, I just had this idea ever since I was a kid, and I kept developing it and, and telling people about it verbally uh, until one one year, in 2008, a friend of mine said, you should write it as a book, and I said, well, I've tried, but I can't get past 20 pages, and he said, uh, like, I challenge you, he was a corporate trainer, he said, I challenge you to show me 30 pages. You can do a page a day for a month, and I'll buy you lunch. So that challenge got me off the stick, and I ended up with a 360-page manuscript that was just awful. And it was a great idea, but I, the, the writing wasn't very good. So I put it away in a drawer until about 2014. Yeah, and um, then I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to write. So I got myself a writing mentor, whom I found online, very similar to the way you found me. And uh, she mentored me for two years, and uh, it took two years to revise the book. And uh, finally, she sent me an email saying, "Congratulations, you have a book." Wow. So I I got it published. Uh, I got a publisher after about 60 tries, and um, uh, the book came out uh, originally with that publisher, uh, 2015. Um, but 
and I was all set to go to uh, book fair in Chicago with the book. Um, but um, uh, two weeks before uh, the book fair, the, the publisher went out of business, so I had to scramble oh, no. to publish to publish the book independently by myself. And mm-hmm. so that's another education I got. Uh, and so the book is independently published and has won several awards. And now the latest being these uh, the children's literary classics, which I'm thrilled about because I've I've always wanted a book. Uh, as influential as the Phantom Tollbooth was to me, that this book be influential for kids growing up who have issues of self-esteem or feelings of, um, you know, not being, um, you know, uh, what other people expect. And uh, so the book is a, is a like a Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz kind of parable about a little boy who travels through his emotional landscape, basically. Um, he travels, uh, he finds out that the old king of average, Norman the Unexceptional, has disappeared, and they're looking for a new king, someone who's striving to be the most average person in the world, and that's him. So they, uh, he, he gets judged by a panel of judges who are responsible for the law of averages, and um, they, they have a, uh, a mediocrity, uh, which is a, a type of a government, and uh, he's he's tasked to find out what happened to the old king. So uh, along the way, he meets an optimist named Monsieur Roger and a pessimist named uh, Killjoy, and uh, they travel together with the goat, Mayor Culpa, uh, to Lake Inferior. Um, there's the unattainable mountain <laughs> range in in the uh, you know which are where the highest mountain is called Mount Impossible. You know, and if you climb that, you know, there's the realm of geniuses beyond that, but nobody ever gets there. And um, they travel around to the land of Accusia, where every, you know, where scapegoats are bred. Anyway, it's a, it's a fun book. Gary, do you... And put, I'm do really you, thrilled. I'm thrilled for you. Do you happen to have a copy nearby and could do a short reading while we're talking? Oh, absolutely! As a matter of fact, it. I even I, I I did the audio book uh, not too long ago as well. Oh, fantastic! And I I love it. Sure, I can definitely read a a little passage from the book. Okay. Okay, let's see here. Because the book is not just for children either. You know, I have a lot of psychologists that listen to our podcast, and yeah, the book is definitely not just for kids. No, no. Uh, I wrote it. I wrote it basically to to hit two levels. One, with enough humor that adults would chuckle and laugh, because I'm a big fan of like Rocky and Bullwinkle. Mm-hmm. And Me too. As as uh, as funny as as that show was as a kid, I I totally missed the political satire until I got older. And so this book works on two levels. One, first of all, it's based on my own personal therapy. Uh, I read a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child about One, yes. children, children of abuse who sort of internalize and adopt the abuser's attitude about themselves. And um, uh, so I kind of followed that sort of formula in this book where our hero James is being followed around by a shadow that he can't name or recognize. But... Um, uh, anyway, he, uh, you know, he does, but, 
Okay. Here, I, let me start you on chapter three. Great. This is this. I won't give you the little history of, um, you know, of James's um, home life. Suffice it to say, he has a, a mother who is unhappy and wishes that he would never born. Um, so this is called. He enters the realm of possibilities. James hadn't gone more than a few steps before something even more unbelievable happened. He was no longer in Mrs. Shubin's backyard. The familiar houses were gone. In fact, there were no houses, just a rolling grass-green plain. Craggy mountains wreathed in mists and clouds rimmed an endless horizon. No transporter beam had disassembled James's molecules and reassembled them on another planet. Somehow, in the flicker of an instant, everything had changed. James froze. The goat trotted back. What's the matter now? Where am I? You're here and we're headed to average. James hardly heard a word the goat said. He was still grappling with what had just happened. How had he gotten here? And where's here? Step lively, there's no time to lose. Our king is gone, vanished. What are you talking about? The little goat kept on as if it hadn't heard. And it's all my fault, bah! When he saw James gaping at him and not moving, the goat stopped wallowing in guilt for a moment and smiled, as much as a goat could smile. Ah, good, yes, yes, very good, indeed. Of course, it's to be expected. The average person doesn't catch on too quickly. Let me explain and try not to ask too many questions. There's only so much an average person should know. How? James stammered. How did you get here? The usual way. Nothing unusual ever happens in average. Only ordinary things. It's the law. Only ordinary things, James repeated. Not grasping it right away, the goat nodded approvingly. Fine, I'll go a little slower. You are not far from average. The kingdom of average, to be precise, a commonwealth in the realm of possibility. The goat waited patiently for James to digest this before continuing. I'm told you want to become the most average person in the world. Is that correct? How did you hear that? Like I said, a little bird told me. James shook his head vigorously, trying to rattle his brain into sanity. There were no signs of his neighborhood anywhere. Instead, he surveyed a landscape, very much like the one in his doodles. Only this wasn't crayon, ink, or pencil. The sky was real, cloudless, and pale blue. The air was still, and the ground smelled of real earth and greenery. This was real. Very real. How's, how about that? Beautiful. I was so there. I wish you hadn't stopped. I was, oh. <laughs> I was smelling the earth with you. Oh, thank oh, you. Well, the world is filled with a lot of wonderful uh, places. The dungeons of Accusia, where they have a boy king named King Onus. And I, I wrote a blog about it because uh, we have a spoiled brat for a president. Yeah. And uh, it's, I wrote how similar he is to the, to the king of Accusia in my story. 
Well, you know, um, what I'm going to do is post the uh, links to your site and your book and how to get the book and the audio. When's the audio book coming out? The book is the audio book is out now. As a matter of fact, you can uh, there's a you can buy uh, the ebook on Amazon, and I think for like um, four dollars more, three ninety nine more, you can get the the audio book companion with it. It's called Whisper Sync, but the audio book is on Audible.com. And uh, the book is on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all of the online places. And um, I'm celebrating with a, a special at my website. You can tell your listeners this. Um, I'm giving away a free audio book with every autographed copy of, the, of a book that is bought off of my website. Wonderful. Great. Yeah. So it, it's so exciting. And the work that you do is so spectacular. And um, you are a voiceover <laughs> actor as well. That was quite a beautiful reading. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, Thank you. Getting back to your story, you know, Alice Miller, The Drama of the Gifted Child is a book uh, that really helped me in my own therapy and then many of my patients. Yeah. And in listening to your story, um, and I've worked with a lot of people with, you know, horrible backgrounds, childhoods, oh. um, and and growing up with mental illness is a horrible thing to experience for a kid. And being the oldest child, a lot of time the eldest child assumes the role of the hero, we call it, or the the kid well, that's going to be... a lot of, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's, you, you, you find you, you have those family systems are... There's there's a there's the, there's the the black sheep and the golden child mm-hmm. and yeah there's you you find those categories but basically my uh, you have to adopt what I consider a false persona to show to the world because you feel so bad about yourself mm-hmm. and what I did as a kid growing up is I learned how to be funny mm-hmm. because that made me socially acceptable to people. And and so many famous comedians have done the same thing. I think about, um, oh gosh, Richard Pryor and other famous comedians who came from high dysfunctional doesn't even describe it anymore. But also something else that you had is resilience. And this resilience is so important because you were able to say to yourself, I'm not that bad. And that's an yeah. incredible insight for a child to have. So you must have had, did you have some nurturing figures somewhere, distant relatives or a teacher or somebody that really believed in you? Well, I had a couple of very good teachers. Um, like I said, I spent a lot of times uh, uh, developing friendships with uh, friends who, who came from normal homes. As a matter of fact, my very first best friend, uh, uh, you know, we're still in touch. Um, uh, he it was a very religious per, a guy. He was, um, you know, he, he became an evangelist minister. And my very second best friend was uh, the son of a, a Methodist minister. So as a Jew, <laughs> I got I got quite a, a Christian education. Did you and, eat uh, Did you eat bacon with him? I, yeah, well, that's a very funny story because my parents wanted me to grow up to, uh, uh, and be Orthodox Jewish. And they, they, they would, they took, I had to go to Orthodox Hebrew school, which I hated. And, um, my mother, uh, of course would not go. They just wanted me to go. My mother would drive me to within four blocks of the synagogue and say, get out and walk like the other kids. And then, 
she'd pick me up at a prearranged spot and uh, I'd come home and we'd have bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwiches and a malted milk. That's how kosher we were. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I learned very early that, uh, you know, it's to be, I'm proud of my cultural heritage, but I'm not, I'm not a religious person. That, that story. But I did have, uh, I did have, um, you know, good influences in my life and, Viola Spolin, of course, being one of the major ones. And that happened at a time when I was successful enough as an actor to afford a lot of therapy. And I kind of broke through my own barriers in my 40s. You know, I um, your story reminds me, I I sat next to Christopher Cross, who wrote that book, uh, Sailing. Uh, Do you remember Christopher Cross? The I know musician, the um, it was, and it was he oh, did yeah. the theme song for Arthur, and so mm-hmm. on that plane flight because I'm a therapist and I'm good at questions, I discovered he told me his story. He said he grew up in a very bad alcoholic family, but he had a friend mm-hmm. whose father took the little boy out sailing and would take Christopher Cross out sailing, and he said that was the only time in his life where he felt safe and loved. And yeah. I think that's so important that kids get that sense from somebody. If it's not, it can't be their parents, a teacher, a coach, whatever yeah. it is. It was my friend's parents were very, uh, they were like real parents. You know, I remember coming downstairs. Uh, I tell this story to my friend Chip Sutton, his name is. And uh, one day uh, his father, who was a executive at General Electric in Schenectady, uh, walking down the stairs, he he looks at me and he says, he's from Georgia, and he goes, "Tucking your shirt tails, Gary, that's disgusting." And I was so thrilled that somebody took an interest in how I looked mm-hmm. to go to school that I tucked in my shirt tails and I tucked them into this very day. And I always remember, you know, that sort of little somebody taking the time to do a parental correction, you know, uh, because my parents were so involved in their own Michigas, you mm-hmm. know, that uh, it was sort of like, I used to sort of laugh it off and just say, yeah, I was raised by wolves when people would see my table manners or whatever. And, mm-hmm. um, but um, I, 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 made, I made my way through. Now, now tell me about... Um, and what you have is a lot of empathy. Do you have a lot of empathy and compassion? In our work together, I've experienced that firsthand, that you're a very compassionate person. And uh, it was one of the things I love about you. But I want to ask you how you started miming at age 13. Was that when you started miming? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I um, again, it's an, another great way to stay out of the house. Uh, what happened was um, I was at Hebrew school. And across the street from my Hebrew school was this uh, big Catholic school called St. Helens. And I was always curious what, you know, what those uniformed kids were marching into in that school across the street. Um, but, of course, uh, you know, uh, we just sat out in the parking lot as Jewish kids and just watched. Well, one day, uh, a man came across the street, a guy with a beard and a turtleneck and a jacket, and he, you know, he said, I'm directing, uh, uh, Thornton Wilder's Our Town at the, uh, St. Helens Catholic School. I'm a drama teacher from the college, and they hired me to direct. 
but half my cast just got the flu and were looking for more kids to be in a play. I raised my hand immediately and I said, I'll, I'll, I want to be in a play just because I wanted to see the inside of a, the Catholic school. <laughs> I ended up uh, playing Simon Stimson, the drunk in our town. And um, the uh, drama teacher said, you know, you move very well. He said, you know, I run a mime troupe in Poughkeepsie, New York, and every year we uh, we tour with Pete Seeger on the Clearwater Sloop up and down the Hudson River. Uh, you should come and join the troupe. So, you know, uh, it was uh, it was like there I could spend a whole summer away from home mm-hmm. at uh, age thirteen, and so I immediately stole every pantomime I could remember from the Red Skelton show and mm-hmm. from Dick Van Dyke. Uh-huh. And I started performing them uh, 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 in this mime company called the Now Teen Mime Troupe. And uh, we toured uh, up and down the Hudson River with Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie and, and uh, Don McLean and uh, uh, the Beers family, a lot of great folk singers from the, from the 60s. And uh, so I spent the summer living and, and making a living, believe it or not, uh, performing in front of thousands of people uh, on the banks of the Hudson River. That is that was so, my first uh, job. That is so beautiful. And what a wonderful story, especially since you got to escape from that home and be recognized yeah. and get paid. I imagine even if you didn't get money, you would have been happy because you were getting acknowledged and recognized and validated for something oh, you absolutely. did. Oh, absolutely. Believe me. I was I was I was hooked from that moment on. As a matter of fact, um I became a self-taught mime and uh I taught mime at my old high school and uh I started doing mime uh, uh you know, uh I, in my uh, in my uh, early twenties, uh, uh, um, but I was of course you couldn't make a living doing pantomime, uh, or I, and I uh, at least I thought that's that's what uh, I was led to believe by my parents who said you have to get a real job. Mm-hmm. So I um, I just would do pantomime. I, I was a bartender until I was twenty seven, and I would do mm. uh, I would tend bar uh, and and do do routines behind the bar for my customers. Plus, I also uh, taught mime uh, at my old high school and performed wherever I could. I just loved that attention. You're right. Well, now, did you uh, formally study acting somewhere? Uh, I did go uh, one year. I went to uh, a small college in Vermont called Wyndham College, and they didn't have a drama program, but I they did have a mime teacher there named Suzanne Fox. So that was my first formal training as a mime, a uh, classically trained mime. Uh, in my, And then uh, I had a year of work in between, and I went back to college one more year uh, to Emerson College to be in their drama program, but I couldn't get in. Um, so I ended up doing, uh, being, uh, doing dinner theater on the side, and then um, uh, I tried my hand at New York City, as to be an actor, but I, I failed miserably and ran out of money, uh, went back to Schenectady and became a bartender until I was 27. 
when I really got was so unhappy with my life at that point that I was drinking heavily and I fell asleep at the wheel one night after having driven all my friends home from the bar and ran into a gas pump um, and almost mm. blew myself up. And I realized, you know, that's one of those turning point moments. And I said, you know, whether you're going to make a living at it or not, you better do the thing you love because I certainly didn't love drinking and being a bartender. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I started, I found this guy uh, in the Whole Earth Catalog. His name was Samuel Avital. Mm-hmm. He was an Israeli mime who had a kibbutz in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> and he taught pantomime <laughs> and the Kabbalah. So he, t- he was sort of a mystical Jewish rabbi mime. Wow. Wow. And I figured this this is for me. Yeah. So I packed up everything and went out uh, to Colorado to study mime and the Kabbalah. And I thought I was just going to be a monastic, starving artist on a mountaintop in whiteface. Well, it turned out that somebody had given uh, uh, Sam a real job. By the time I got out there, he had closed his kibbutz and was touring Europe. And so I had nowhere to go except to visit my sister who lived in Los Angeles. Uh, So I went to stay on her couch for a little while. I got a bartending job to make ends meet and started doing the exact same thing I did in Schenectady, which was perform wherever I could. But in Hollywood, when you're in Hollywood, um, you start meeting the right people. And uh, I met a mime teacher there named Richmond Shepard. I became part of his troupe. I met my best friend and uh, comedy team partner, Caleb Chung, and we became the comedy mime duo of Schwartz and Chung. And we did television and worked at the comedy store and uh, um, did corporate uh, performing as a comedy team. And uh, school assemblies, we wrote a, a show called Mime as a Second Language for the Hispanic community. And uh, we we uh, got I got to do television um, and commercials. Well, and it was and, wasn't uh, it? I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but wasn't it you and Chung that did the um, Zubilee Zoo together with Ben? Well, Murray? no, that's what what happened was very interesting. Uh, we were uh, Caleb went on the audition for Zubilee Zoo, which called for actors who could sing and dance, and. Um, by this time, I had already been so bored with pantomime. I taught at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I had encountered Viola Spolin, and I thought, I, I have to talk. <clears throat> so um, Caleb went on this job, uh, on this audition, and I said, well, you know, I can't go because I don't sing or dance. Well, it turns out that he got a call back, and I thought to myself, huh, well, gee, Caleb can't sing or dance, and I'm a better actor than he is. So I went on his callback, and I ended up getting the job, and he didn't. <laughs> so, But uh, that led Caleb to a career as a toy inventor, wow. and Caleb uh, uh, invented the Furby and became no. a multimillionaire. No. <laughs> yes. Yep. Wow, what an incredible journey. So, But then you... Oh. you 
you yeah. did some acting as well. I mean, you you acted with some luminaries like Redford and Streisand and Tim Burton. Well, what happened was, it's very interesting. The first uh, movie I got was a movie called Quest for Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, they, uh, it was about prehistoric man, mm-hmm. and they thought they needed mimes who could be very physically expressive. Um, but uh, mimes are notoriously bad over actors. You ever watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, Marcel Marceau in a, yes. in a movie? Yes, yeah. He's not a good actor. He's a great mime. <clears throat> uh, but I was the only one who could, uh, who, who, who uh, of all of the mimes, got got in that movie. And, uh, uh, that was a, my first big major motion picture. Um, but by this time I was, uh, studying improv in, in, um, and I had a, I had, I had a, an audition tape, uh, for voiceover work because I love to do voices and sound effects and all of that stuff. And I got a job doing what's called film looping. And film looping is basically when you watch a movie and they have extras in the background, the extras are told to act like they're talking, but please don't make any sound because we're recording the main actor's dialogue. Mm-hmm. And then when the movie's all cut together, we'll bring in a bunch of improvisers to watch the movie and fill in your voices in the background and make it sound like there's people there. Mm-hmm. So that was my job, to watch background actors and make up what they were saying that sounded authentic. And it was a very specialized uh, uh, form of voiceover work called looping, or walla, which is the noise that you hear people make, you know, peas and carrots, walla, 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 mm-hmm. walla. But we had to actually uh, record it at full volume and make it sound very authentic. And <clears throat> oftentimes the directors of the film were there to direct the sessions with us and so I got to work on the movie Prince of Tides with Barbara Streisand, and uh, we worked on uh, Quiz Show with Robert Redford and uh, uh, Dead Again with Kenneth Branagh. And yeah, I worked with, uh, we did over 600 movies and television shows. And I was very fortunate because I got an, I was an early adopter of computers. Uh, I worked on the TV series Max Headroom. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I loved it. And my boss, my boss, said, you, you really talk that computer stuff pretty good. I'm going to put you on Star Trek. So I got to do voiceover on the Star Trek series, Next Generation, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and Enterprise uh, for about 14 years. Oh, that must have been a fun. Was that fun? Do you have fun doing it, oh, Gary? Oh, my gosh. It was the best. Are you kidding? Being a Trekkie myself and then <clears throat> getting to work on the actual TV series uh, I was in heaven. It was the best job of my career. Wow. And it's still, I still get residuals from Star Trek 30 years later. Be sure to listen to part two of our interview with Gary Schwartz, where he'll be talking about his career in improv theater, studying with Viola Spolin, and coaching. <laughs> 